Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I think we're the closest to on time that we've been since I've had a new baby. So <laughs> um, good morning, Bruce. It is great to see you today. Good morning. Awesome. Awesome. Well, today we're going to be continuing on our conversation through Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And what I love about this book and the conversation we're going to have today is that it's relevant to everyone. And the reason is that we're in a chapter that is talking about retirement in a book talking about infinite banking. But really, the big picture here is that we're talking about success in life and how to really live on purpose. And the reason that this is in this portion of the book is that really, Nelson Nash is juxtaposing these two ideas, one being retirement, being put out of use and getting into a position of relying on pensions and government programs to tax defer money to save for retirement where you're in the position of putting money at risk and having this entire paradigm towards ending work. And he's saying that's really not the best way to live your life because you're seeing that when you don't have a reason to work and serve people and provide value, that causes a lot of problems, cognitive problems, physical problems, social problems, and the decline of really being uh, alive and, and living your fullest, best life. And so he says, what's the opposite of that is really living on purpose. And what we're going to talk about today is the context of how to really make sure that not only your infinite banking is doing well, but that you are using these principles to live on purpose in your life, in your business, and improve every area of your life. And so we're going to be, again, Diving deeper into this book, Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. Bruce, let's hear your thoughts at the top of this episode here. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> Nelson was very disillusioned with government programs in general. And um, as we kind of mentioned this at the end of the last podcast, you know, and this is one of my favorite quotes from Nelson. He says, when government creates a problem, onerous taxation, and then turns around and creates an exception to the problem they created, re read tax shelter retirement plans, aren't you just a little bit suspicious that you're being manipulated? And then he took it, you know, further when they went from uh, traditional tax-deferred programs to Roth IRAs, which eliminated the tax-deferred. And so he says, you know, government creates taxation that they said is good for society. Then they convince everybody, oh, let's put it into a tax-deferred program so that you don't have to be taxed. Well, well then why did you start with taxation to, to begin with? And then in 1999, they did a Roth IRA, which says, oh, well, yeah, this tax-deferred program isn't all that great, so let's do a, a non-taxable Roth option, pay the taxes now, and then you don't have to pay the taxes in the future on your investment. 
And Nelson was just like, you know, this is, don't you feel manipulated because they're going back and forth. And it's actually still happening today. And it's, um, there's actually some proposal from legislature right now that's going to try to increase uh, a person's ability to uh, contribute to tax deferred programs. And as I mentioned on the show before, you know, the famous thing that people always say about tax deferred programs is you're in a high tax bracket now. So get, so get a break on taxes by putting some of your income in tax deferred, but you're going to be in a lower tax bracket in the future. And that's although the that's the argument all the time. Mm-hmm. And although it could happen for a select group of people, it's been my experience when I actually do the analysis with people, it doesn't happen very often. And then you have to ask yourself, if we are on, and I don't know if we mentioned, I don't think we mentioned this um, last podcast because I think it just came out last Friday. We are about to set a record here in 2023 for the fourth quarter on the borrowing that the United States government's going to do to satisfy all their spending in in the fourth quarter of 2023. And we are going to break that. I think we talked about it being that. $23 trillion last time. No, I think we uh, talked about that. Our debt is $33 trillion, but I'm oh, talking yes. about... I'm talking about what they're going to actually have to borrow for mm. their spending in the fourth quarter of 2023. And then we're going to break that record in the first quarter of 2024. Mm. So this spending is out of control more than it ever has been out of control. And it is starting to compound and escalate at a, time period that is very, very scary for a lot of people. And there, and people are now talking about this great reset where we'll have to actually change our monetary policies. There's going to be tremendous financial pain. And a lot of people are using that as a way to manipulate the general public. And it's never our intentions to manipulate the general public because we do not know what's going to happen in the future, but you can use some common sense logic. If the government has to borrow from the Federal Reserve and they promise to pay that back by selling treasury bonds to people, and if people are starting to get worried about the government's ability to pay on these bonds, then they were going to have to raise the price of the yield on the bonds. And thus, the government's going to have even future greater obligations to pay back. So this is, this is what has happened in every bad economic situation across the history of mankind. And unless we get our spending under control, along with the other societal things that are coming down the road, which is the increase of Medicare and Social Security um, programs. Putting money in tax-deferred places just logically doesn't make any sense because 
you're not eliminating the tax in the future. You're simply deferring the tax in the future, and you're deferring it to a rate you have no idea what it's going to be. And looking at this storm cloud brewing, yes, I think any logical person would look at that and say, probably taxes are not going to go down in the future. The tax rate, the tax thresholds, it's probably not going to be a lesser ask for the American population from the government in the future. Yeah, and that's where this uh, retirement trap comes in. You know, it was first. It first came in because of um, the Great Depression and having uh, Social Security, and that's when the whole idea even started. Before that, there wasn't this idea of retirement. And then, as we progress as a society, we started looking at more and more. The, well, when I say we the government started looking at more and more ways to supposedly help society in, in to prepare for a retirement. And it started in the early 70s with the IRA. It was accelerated in 1979 with Ted Benno, one of our original podcast guests that we had on the show. And Ted was adamant about the fact that he never intended um, – the 401k to be a re- only a retirement program. He was simply looking at it as a way to defer taxes. Well, at that time, the we were not under a whole lot of debt. The tax rates th- uh, were coming down through the Reagan administration, and just like government always thinks, is it's, so it's going to be like that for the rest of you know history. And. Now we've gotten into a place where we've manipulated the tax code tremendously. When I say we, I mean Congress has mm-hmm. manipulated the tax code tremendously because, yes, our marginal tax rates have come down, but that's not the only thing that actually determines taxes. Mm-hmm. Other things that determine taxes is the size of the brackets and the deductions that you actually get, whether they're Active deductions or passive deductions, or like a passive deduction would be the, your standard deduction or an exemption you give to everybody, depending on how many people they're having or household. Where an active deduction would be other things that are incentives that Congress puts in the tax code to get taxes down. My taxes in 2020 from the Tax and Jobs Act actually went up because they eliminated some deductions on the Schedule D for property taxes, state taxes, and local taxes. And I can no longer deduct those uh, from my taxes. And, mm. and thus, that meant that, my yes, my marginal tax rates went down, but my overall tax bill went up because I could not de- deduct as much. And many of my clients, when we reviewed this with them, the same thing happened to them. So it was sold as a tax decrease, and it was for some people, but not for everybody. So that's why you have to look at your own situation. So that's where this whole retirement trap is not just about productivity, as Nelson talks about, or talks about uh you know, contributing to society and your health, your health, both mentally and physically, but also in the fact that 
that mentality causes people to put money in places that they would not normally put money in if they knew what was going on. Because they're led to believe it's the wisest, best decision because the government says, well, look, taxes are potentially going to go down in the future. You're not paying tax today. And so it's easy to focus on one small piece of the picture and make that the goal, paying less tax today and putting money aside for the future. And we think, oh, hey, we're doing the right thing. And we realize that we're shooting ourselves in the foot because we're writing a future check to the IRS for taxes with an unknown amount. And they'll determine what that amount is when it comes time to pay. And they'll potentially change the rules for how much we can take out and how much we have to take out, requiring potentially even more in payments than we were expecting if we were going to take out a lesser amount. Yeah, they just recently did that. And first of all, I want to clarify something. Let's think about this logically again. Some of the greatest deductions you have as a younger person is you get to deduct your children mm-hmm. as as um, exemptions. Uh, a lot of times you get a child tax credit if you're in a certain tax bracket. Uh, you get a mortgage deduction a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times. And you also get a deduction if you are actually putting in these, uh, contributing these tax deferred accounts. Well, as you get older, when you get closer to retirement, your children are out of the house. You've been paying on your mortgage. So now the interest is lower. So you don't get that deduction. You don't get the child tax credit. And you are not contributing to the tax deferred programs anymore. So, so even logically, if the rules stayed the same as they are today, you're probably going to be in a higher tax bracket. Or at least the same pay. tax bracket. Yeah. So if you're in the same tax bracket, this is what I tell people all the time. So if you're in the same tax bracket, why are you putting money into places that you cannot control and you're going to have to pay the same taxes in the future? It doesn't make any sense. Why not actually pay the taxes now where you know the rate is going to be, be able to control your money? The government would say also is that, well, you can't, you can't handle your own money. We're going to help you put the money someplace that you can't touch. And thus, that's what's best for you because you're an, you're an idiot. And you can't control your own finances. And don't you feel empowered by that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if, if you recall from another podcast episode in 2017, $58 billion was removed from tax deferred accounts before age 59 and a half in just that one year resulting in a a 10% penalty or $5.8 billion of revenue for the government. And why? Why why was money taken out before age 59 and a half when the rules state that you don't have the penalty if you wait to take money out until after 59 and a half? Well, because people needed access to money. And where is the money that they could potentially access in these qualified plans? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, that's where the lack of control comes in. So, you know, um, what's interesting, Rachel, as I was looking at this, which I've read this a bunch of times, you know, we kind of ended the last time talking about pensions in America and, you know, the reasons for them. The reason for that was actually that we were coming out of World War II. And during the World War II, um, everything was scarce. 
and this just shows my age. I can remember going to my my grandparents' house in 1973, which was about 30, not quite 30 years after World War II had ended. About, what, about 20, 28 years after World War II had ended. And my grandparents still had ration tickets in 1973 sitting on their windowsill along mm. with with empty glass jars, along with stacks and stacks of newspaper. They hoarded everything because during that time, uh, things were scarce. And they had and that scarce th- mindset. They had that scarce that carried mindset. carried over into a time that they didn't need it. That's exactly right. And then during that time period of World War II, they also, because they limited how much you could could buy, they also had to then limit growth as far as wages. And so the United States government forced a froze, frozen wages on people. And so the only way around it, and this is a socialist type of thing, you know, we're going to tell you how much, it's not a free market thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to tell you how much you can pay people. So which, what means, companies- which means behind that, which we'll get into in just a second, but behind controlling the amount you can pay somebody is a mentality that you can't exactly incentivize good production. You can't incentivize quality because you can't exactly pay for performance. You can't pay for somebody doing an excellent job because no matter how hard they try, no matter how great your worker is, no matter how innovative they are, how much they advance the business and grow, their wages will stay the same. So it removes the incentive to actually provide more value. Yeah, what I'm about to bring up right now, I may alienate some listeners. It's not my intention. It's um, it's something that I believe is a manipulation manipulation in the marketplace, and I don't. Ne- I believe unions were actually necessary at one time, but now they have actually, in the auspices of actually helping people. Once again, a union is like a central government. It's no different mm-hmm. because it's a central group of small amount of people that think they know what's best for everybody. And what happened during this period, because they could not, they could not raise wages, they said, okay, well, we can increase benefits. And that's where pensions started to develop. That's where paying for health insurance started to develop. All amiable things. But what it ended up doing was it actually put pressures on those particular aspects of business to actually perform. And then the unions actually not only were doing pressure for wages, but they were also doing pressures for benefits. Now, I'm not I'm not saying there there wasn't a need for unions and there wasn't, you know, some people that were taking advantage of labor at that time, so on and so forth. That that is absolutely true. But it but the unions I think developed to a point where they were actually holding um society at hostage. And what has happened with that is the pressure that they were feeling to increase benefits actually helps the individual worker on the short-term basis, but it also then 
hurts them on the long-term basis, which we've already discussed as far as, you know, the, the, the tax deferred accounts, but other things, and this is not about retirement so much, but it's also about, it's very complicated right now, but it's also about healthcare, the increased cost of healthcare. When I was growing up, we didn't have insurance for basic needs. You just paid out of pocket. The doctor's offices and the hospitals didn't have to have a massive army of people to actually focus on administrating insurance costs. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is the unions pushed for more and more insurance at no cost to the employee. This caused a massive amount of people using health insurance when they normally wouldn't for minor things. This put a pressure, this put pressure on the healthcare system. And then the healthcare system said, well, if the individual's not paying for this and the insurance company's paying for it, then we're just going to charge more because we can, because they they put a pool together of money. This raised it up. Well, when it raised up the cost, guess what happened? The unions went back in and said, hey, we need even greater benefits. benefits. And because we need to pay for this escalating healthcare costs. Well, when that happened, guess what? More administrative costs for the medical community. And, oh, you're going to pay for this? Okay. We're going to raise costs again. And it just escalated out of control. So what ended up happening then is the costs for the um, the different corporations to provide these benefits put a downward pressure on wages. And so there's been a lot of surveys with people that said they would, let, would rather have less benefits and higher wages because they can control the benefits that they're getting. I mean, it's the same thing with the big picture American way of doing things. I mean, if we we're able to keep more of the money that we make and not have to pay so much in taxes, then the human or the the population could then decide how to pool capital for improving education or improving transportation or improving healthcare. But rather with the taxation system, the government says, well, we're the best ones to make the decision. You pay us taxes. We'll, from the top down, make all these decisions for society about what's best for them. And the challenge with that is we all want more control. I mean, the government is no exception to that, but the control is best in the hands of the individual rather than a higher government or a higher authority making decisions for everyone else. I mean, we all benefit from having freedom to make decisions. Yeah, and as, and there's all kinds of, and this is Nelson talked about this through, through fee, all find the foundation for economic education because Nelson used to always say, if people knew what was happening, then they would know what to do. And so that's why we're trying to do this education. That's why FEE, the Foundation of Economic Education, was also founded. This is the day after. We're, we're uh, doing this podcast the day after the United Auto Workers has an agreement in place because they were striking for six weeks. And the agreement now is going to cause the price of a car to go up 
And what else, what the other pressures that they're talking about is it's also going to make the profitability of the car manufacturer go down because they're on, they're going to increase uh, wages 25% in the next four years and give a cost of living adjustment on that 25%. So the manufacturer has higher cost of labor and because of that, they're going to have to charge more for cars to us. Cor correct. But they don't believe they can pass all that onto the consumer because the consumer won't buy a car. Mm -hmm. So what they're going to have to do is pass some of that on the consumer, become less profitable. Well, guess what happens when they become less profitable? Less Their stock quality. price goes down. Or, yeah, that's another thing. We're going to talk about quality here in a second. But their stock price goes down. Guess what? Most of the auto workers have a 401k for retirement. And guess what? A lot of them do because they get the opportunity to buy stock purchases in their 401k. They have a lot of their own corporation stock in their 401k. So Which now they're, they're going to get paid. They're going to get paid more, but their retirement account will be, feel pressure and go down. So they're going to lose out on that way. We talk about it's this all the time. not a way to be in control. Time. I mean, you Correct. can focus on correcting one problem, but there's unintended consequences that sometimes when we become blind to them, we actually cause a bigger problem by fixing or thinking we're fixing one thing that wasn't really the main issue. Right. And this is what goes on with government all the time. They have good intentions when they first start, but they can't help themselves because they're trying to get reelected. So they're trying to prove to people, I'm doing something for you. And they pick the group of per people that they would most likely get votes from. And mm -hmm. they shift that performance there without looking for the good of the, of the whole. And that's no, just the thing. I mean, when you look at re-election, I mean, you're in a, a short time window, no matter which election you're looking at. But we're if their office is four years, they're just looking for that four-year time frame to get reelected, or if it's two years. And the situation then is that they're not looking for what's best over a 20, 25, 30, 40-year time frame. And it can feel really good if you are the American population, you're a human, a regular human, and you're getting this additional benefit from the government. Oh, hey, look what they did for me. I'm going to vote for them, which makes sense. But again, we need to see behind that and recognize the manipulation that is ultimately not in our best interest long term. Yeah, and this is uh, this is the what they call the invisible hand of the economy, and and so the reason we're bringing this up is. This is part of the retirement trap. And this is why even though the government has put these type of retirement plans in place in the 70s, many people, now there's exceptions all the time to these rules, okay? So I'm not saying everybody is like this, but the government has pinpointed and said there's still not enough people that have enough money saved for retirement. So we have to do something else. We have to do something else. And then we have to do something else. It's 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 like a hamster on a wheel. They just keep going, 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 and uh, think they have uh, solved this. So Not their problem to solve, though. I mean, if, if they exactly. recognize that, I mean, ultimately, the way to solve problems for humans isn't to do for them. I mean, we recognize that in parenting. If you just 
do every single thing for your child, they're going to be handicapped because they won't have the ability to think for themselves and plan for themselves and do for themselves. And when you remove that power to act from someone say, oh, hey, I know what's best for you. I'm going to do it for you. There's not the ability for then the people who need more money saved for retirement, who need to put more, who need to take more financial control so they cannot be dependent in the future. They need to be able to take ownership and responsibility themselves. And that's the only way you're truly going to be empowered to change the situation. And what does this have to do with Nelson's teachings? Well, Nelson's basically saying a good place then to stay in control is to take out whole life insurance contracts because not only are you building up tax-free money that you can access at any time, you can now pass on a leveraged up death benefit to the next generation that if they are taught concepts properly, then they can actually be better people in society and thus control where they what they do with their lives. Most people want to retire because they are not happy with the work that they're in. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience of over 20 plus years of being in the financial services industry. That is why they want to do it. So if you can control, if you can have capital that you can control, you have capital you control, you can actually do things the way you want it to do want to them to be done in your life, thus you don't feel the need to actually retire. It's it really is that simple. It absolutely is. And Bruce, I love that you said that if there could be control, then there wouldn't we wouldn't feel the need to have to retire. There's also this component that if you had financial control, if you controlled capital yourself, you probably wouldn't feel the need to stay employed with an employer that is right. not an ideal fit for you, where you're not able to contribute your greatest potential. And either that would lead towards more entrepreneurship or just more innovation within businesses. But if you control capital, you have a lot of control in every other area of your life and you're able to make decisions. And what is a really interesting pivot point, and we're going to try to keep this episode short today, and uh, I'm looking at the time and I'm not sure that's possible, but we, what's really fascinating is that when you control capital and when you don't feel the need to have to leave a job and to retire, there's this other world that opens up to you when you're living on purpose. And so that's really what Nelson then exposes through the rest of this chapter. And he talks about two different people who had such a strong purpose in their life that they didn't feel the need to retire and they were continuing to contribute to society. They were making a big difference all the way until their later years. And I just want to bring both of these up. So one of them was John Templeton. He's the creator of the Templeton Fund. And um, very successful mutual fund. Yes. So he, um, Nelson is bringing up this idea that a lot of people die shortly after they retire. And what he's talking about, that doesn't mean they retire and then, you know, death is impending right afterwards. But if you lose your sense of purpose and your sense of being able to be fulfilled because you're doing something of value on this earth and you're providing value to other people that they are recognizing enough to be able to pay you for those services. When you remove that equation, there's not as much purpose. There's not as much sense of fulfillment because you don't feel like you're contributing as much. And so Nelson 
really drives home this idea that mankind needs to have a purpose in life. So um, this John, I think I'm saying it right. Where's his name? John Templeton. So he, okay, so he, never mind, I'm going to jump ahead. There's another guy, Leonard E. Reed, which was Nelson's mentor. So focus on the fact that he had a mentor. He didn't just create all these ideas and he didn't just live his life without someone that he looked up to. Um, He was the foundation of the Foundation for Economic Education, died at age 85 in his sleep the night before the semi-annual meeting of the foundation, and he was going to work the next day. So this idea that he, at 85 years old, had a purpose big enough that was driving him to be able to work the next day, he lived a long life. Then he brings up this W. Edward Deming. And Bruce, I did a little bit of research on this guy. Uh, I'm sure that you know a little bit more about him as well, even than I do. But he um, was after the after World War II in the 50s, he went to Japan, he really helped them to revolutionize the way that they did business and improved the quality of their work. He came back to America, he became the darling of the business world, he was doing all this work in business consulting, and he was lecturing on these 14 points that made him famous. He died at age 93, and he was, again, still doing this work because he had a fire inside of him that was allowing him to have this purpose. And I love his 14 points that I'd love to be able to emphasize a little bit here before we end the show today. But Bruce, is there anything else that you want to bring up about Deming and his work? Well, I want to, I want to remind people that Deming was actually um, from America, United States. And he went to Japan to help rebuild Japan. One of the reasons he did that is because peop- uh, corporations in the United States did not want to listen to them, him because he, the United States corporations didn't need it coming out of World War II because we had all these soldiers coming back. They went to, they went to college on the GI Bill. They built up not really great uh, lives for themselves and their families. And the United States was actually prospering at that time. So they didn't think they needed to actually get any better. And they said, why, why do we need these processes? We're, we're doing great. And that was kind of the short-sightedness of the American corporation. And, and Deming was trying to tell them, no, you got to constantly be, be improving. It's called Kaizening. He developed mm-hmm. this Kaizening with uh, Japan, where you're constantly looking for improvement. I saw this happening as a young kid happening because the American automobile was the worst. It was actually very nice automobiles in the 50s. It started to decline in the 60s, and they were terrible in the 70s. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Japanese cars were starting to be introduced to the United States in the 70s, and they were much higher quality, and and they actually really put pressure on the auto workers. Um, because uh, not the auto works, the automobile manufacturers, mm. because they were so much higher quality. And what did the auto, the auto manufacturers do? The auto workers do? They they tried to shame people and saying, "Our cars are good. You guys shouldn't be. You should not be buying cars from across the across the seas. You should be only be buying." Uh, United States cars. So they were just burying burying their head in the sand about their quality and then trying to shame people to buy their cars anyway. 
And so it just spiraled downward. It wasn't until the the late 90s, I believe, that quality came back in the United States manufacturers and then started to lessen that. And uh, finally, Deming started to get these types of, of points across to corporations in the United States. And Nelson mentions that he dies at 93 while he's still lecturing. And that's why he says his contributions both to Japan and the United States was great. And if he decided he was going to retire at 65, he would have never made these contributions to society. And I think what's fascinating about this is not just that he personally had a purpose that allowed him to flourish and live a long, vibrant life where he was still making a big difference at age 93, but the content of the lessons that he taught give us tremendous insight in how to do the same thing. And so I I want to just um, run through these, uh, hopefully fairly quickly. You can look him up and you can find out even more information about him. But what's fascinating is that he used statistical analysis and he really improved production and quality of work all across the board. And this is how he did it. He said, first, you need a constancy of purpose. So you need to have a big purpose that you're continuing to work towards. And I would argue that that's opposite of having a short-term viewpoint where you just have one small goal and then you reach that and then you have another small goal. So if we had constancy of purpose in government, if we had constancy of purpose in our individual lives, we would have a long-term view of what's the best thing in the greatest range of circumstances. Adopt a new philosophy is number two. I would say that that is Nelson's exact idea of rethinking your thinking, being able to recognize where you, what your current thinking is and have metacognition about that, thinking about your thinking and being willing to change and adopt a new philosophy, not being so, um, having the arrival syndrome and Mm -hmm. so egotistical that we've already arrived. Then he says three, end the practice of purchasing at the lowest prices. That relays over to the idea that we shouldn't even be building our own banking system at the lowest prices. We should not be afraid to capitalize. We should be in a position of thinking if we are going to provide value to others, we have to then be willing to purchase quality from other people. I've heard this saying in the business space, and I think it's completely true. If you want to sell high ticket, you need to be a high ticket buyer. So the only way you have the mindset and the mentality to be able to serve people at a really high level is to purchase from other people at a really high level. So if you yeah, in the what are, yeah, I'm sorry, this is triggered. Dan Sullivan, who I talk about a lot, uh, you know, he sells high ticket to business owners uh, up to a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars for one year of consulting, and he says he buys two hundred dollar haircuts and I, I think a lot of women listening probably say well i do 200 plus dollar haircuts but men don't normally do that you know it's yeah 30 or 30 dollars haircuts and he says why do i do that because i want to show the value of just doing things because i want to do it and i want to get the best possible haircut out there and that's why i do it And then you're paying somebody for the quality of their work and what they Mm -hmm. have to offer. And you're truly valuing that person's expertise that made them 
provide you a $200 haircut, not just that you should pay 200 for the same exact thing that somebody's charging $30 for, but somebody's charging 200 because they're doing something differently. There's a different kind of experience. There's a different kind of value built into that offer. So uh, I love this idea of ending the practice of purchasing at the lowest prices. If we turn our mind off from buying the cheapest, we'll also remove our limitation to sell the cheapest. Then he says, institute leadership. And behind the idea of leadership is an idea of ownership, not just following the crowd, not just doing what everyone else is doing, not just falling in line, but really thinking differently and rising above that, leading yourself first, and then being able to lead others and have that influence because you've taken responsibility for where you're going. Then he says, eliminate empty slogans. Have honest words. I mean, that's not, don't just say cliche things for the sake of making it sound good or using other people's vocabulary because you think that other people will resonate with that. It's very important to make sure that we don't just say fruitless, empty, useless words. He says, eliminate numerical quotas. This is encouraging thinking and innovation instead of just focusing on the numbers or the quantity, he's focusing on quality. Then he says, institute on-the-job training. If you are, I mean, on-the-job training means that you're going to be in a kinetic way. You're doing something. You're you're feeling something. You're having the apprenticeship to be able to know what you're going to be, how you're going to be acting or what you're going to be doing in the field. You're not just hearing about it. You're being able to learn by doing. Then he says, drive out fear. This is abundance thinking over scarcity. This is really thinking expansively about what's possible. Break down barriers between departments. If you are if you are working in a silo, living in a silo, you're not going to be able to appreciate the contribution of others and you're not going to understand the big picture. And so if you're going to live on purpose and have your business be on purpose and have a life that you are able to continue living for a really long time, you want to be in a position that you can learn from others and respect others, regardless of where they're coming from or what type of work they do that you can appreciate everyone. Take action to accomplish the transformation. Take action. That's about doing. That's about gaining momentum. It's not sitting there learning without taking action. You often, and I'm learning that this is so, so true. You normally don't have the full understanding of something until you've actually done it. You can think you know, but until you actually do it. Think about driving. You think you know how to drive until you actually drive. You know how to drive because you've done it. It's the same with almost anything in life. Taking action is what gives you the transformation. Then improve constantly and forever. The process of production and service, that's exactly Kaizen. That um, Bruce, you just mentioned that he invented this um, W. Edward Deming. Cease dependence on mass inspection. What I see behind this is that you should not be expecting poor performance. You shouldn't be looking for someone else or looking for your business or looking for the people around you in your life to underperform and be unimpressive. You should be um, not just focusing on inspecting work, but instead expecting the best. Removing barriers to pride of workmanship. This This is the whole core principle behind Atlas Shrugged, if you've ever read that book, the idea that you need to incentivize good production in order to, and really pay people for the value that they contribute And when you do, that motivates a higher quality performance. And then retrain vigorously. We should never stop 
learning. Um, Bruce, I'm sure you have a lot more that you would add into that, but I just, I thought that those 14 points, then he shows the opposite of those with the seven deadly sins, but there's just so many truths that ring true for how to run infinite banking well, how to run a business well, and how to run your life well, so that you can escape this hamster wheel of retirement and that mindset of retirement and instead really live on purpose. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to end today saying that, you know, this is this is not rocket science. Um, it's definitely difficult to in, institute in your own life because if you're in control, there's nobody else to blame but yourself. And I think that's why somebody actually falls into these traps of W-2 jobs and then they complain, oh, my employer does this or they are my coworkers doing this, so on and so forth. And it's, so it's always somebody else's fault. Uh, I can't leave because of this. Always somebody else's fault. Mm. I know I'm not saying it's not hard, but you got to pick your hard. What is hard? It's hard to stay. It's hard to leave. You just have to pick your heart. But it's empowering when you make those decisions. Will it be easy? No. Um, is it hard to take control of your own money and and not do what everybody else is? Yes, it's hard. Because now it's up to you. It's your responsibility. Mm. But that hard, at least you're in control. And I, and I think that is really what Nelson is trying to say in a very difficult concept about rethinking your thinking about retirement, because now you're in control. You're not giving up control to a tax deferral plan that's supposedly a retirement plan. Bruce, I think that's a perfect answer for somebody who's at the tipping point of saying, I don't like the way things are going with typical thinking and retirement planning, and I want something different. But I think that you just spoke to the exact concern or the exact fear of somebody who's ready to jump out of the old paradigm or the typical paradigm or the common way of thinking and adopt a new paradigm. It's that the buck stops with you. It's that the responsibility ultimately is on your shoulders. And we have to be big people to take on that kind of responsibility. But I hope and I pray that we would be the kind of people who do take that kind of responsibility. Man, it feels good after you have done that and taken the responsibility. But that process of taking over ownership and control of any area of your life is intimidating. You don't necessarily feel like you know what you're doing or have what it takes when you get started. And yet at the same time, that process of doing is what gives you the transformation. I'm just going to come back to that um, point that Deming had, which was um, take action to accomplish the transformation. So thank you for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you for digging into these ideas and really seeking to understand why we have the financial landscape that we do in our country and why we have the financial landscape that we do in our own financial lives and what we can do about it to get into a position where we really are living on purpose and what that means and how we can actually accomplish that. So if you are interested in taking this leap or we're speaking your language or you had something that you have specific questions about today, A, we want to hear your questions. So you can pop those into the chat um, or you can put them in the comments section. If you're watching on YouTube, you can put them in the comments if you're on Facebook or LinkedIn, 
or Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this content. Even if you disagreed, even if there was something that um, hit you wrong or you were offended by or something that you didn't like, we'd love to hear that because as you're working through these ideas, sometimes it can be helpful to have a dialogue about that and not just hear something that's controversial or challenging and then walk away. So we'd love to hear your comments, your questions, your feedback. And if this is something that you would like to do to take ownership in your financial life, we can help you. We can hold your hand across that bridge and help you really think differently about your financial life and be able to put in place those action steps to have that transformation. So thank you again for being with us today on the show. And we're going to wrap a little bit early today. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.